Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Topic is fulfillment in life. How do we go about that? So there are two, uh, I would lump, approaches to how people try to find fulfillment, a sense of purpose, a sense of uh, achievement in their life. One way, and this is uh, going to be familiar to you all, is materialism. Materialism is actually uh, a view the tangible food and resources that support human life are a fundamental concern. And that's the ability to achieve the resources, acquire the resources that make our lives easier, more comfortable, essentially support us, are the most important focus of our endeavors. That interior psychological concerns are secondary and that, from some materialist perspectives, behavior, emotional happiness, and our perceptions are actually largely determined by how successful we are in meeting uh, these aims, certainly. Materialism unites both the core perspective of capitalism and communism, which was, of course, based on historical materialism, the idea that if you meet people's needs of resources, happiness will follow, like that. It's best exemplified in the work of Bertolt Brecht, who I really love, wrote Three Penny Opera, amongst others, and in there is a song called What Keeps Mankind Alive, And the lyrics go, you lot who preach restraint and watch your waste as well should learn for once just how the world is run. However much you teach, whatever lies you tell, food is the first thing morals follow on. So first make sure that those who now are starving get proper helpings when we all start carving. And of course, it's hard to argue that we all have basic needs for food, shelter, medication, and so forth. So, uh, but in materialist concerns, those needs extend uh, throughout our endeavors. We disavow, it's easy to disavow materialism and believe that we're all spiritual (laughs) in our lives or primarily spiritual. But it's hard, actually, to discount how deeply influential material perspectives are. It's actually, I would argue, baked into human function and perceptions. Why is that? Well, for the first few years of our life, we are right hemispheric, and that means all we care about is connecting, really, with others for security. And that's pretty much endemic throughout all primates and mammals, this need to connect for security and for a sense of being taken care of. But after we start developing the left hemisphere, and you first become aware of that when language starts, and then the left hemisphere really starts to go online when children start bombarding their parents with, why? Why is this? Why is that that color? Why, why can't I have my, my dessert now, etc.? Um, God bless you, parents. Uh, that would irritate the shit out of me, but uh, but that's how you know a child's left hemisphere is really coming online when it starts to want to have causal explanations. But the actual deepest concern of the left hemisphere is to separate the interconnected world that the right hemisphere sees, to separate it into resources or objects that we can co- acquire and and latch onto that will make our survival more likely, that will enhance our, our chances not only of survival, but enhancing our tribal status as well. So 
the right hemisphere is looking for connection. If you're a bird, your right hemisphere is looking for other birds, and it's also looking for predators like, I, I don't know why I'm doing this, it probably would be a cat down there. <laughs> so, so I think of predators as something like that. Maybe that's the movie Predator. But, uh, <laughs> but the left hemisphere of a bird would be busy focusing on seeds and on food and on material to make a nest. It's the same across primates and the same in Homo sapiens. Uh, as you go through your day, when you enter uh, a space, the first thing is your right hemisphere takes in the entirety of the situation and, and just asks a basic question, am I safe here? But then the field narrows and you focus on looking for somebody that you might be able to uh, talk with or the food table or something like that, your left hemisphere takes over. The left hemisphere is all about, uh, again, uh, acquiring and consuming resources and consciousness is largely he left hemispheric. So for most of us, a large uh, drive or influence on cognitive uh, thought is how can I get through today getting the food, the things I need, how can I meet my obligations so that I can have a place that I can return to and uh, you know pay the rent and so forth. So uh, uh, there's other reasons why living our lives, orienting it in terms of consuming, acquiring is so predominant. One, the search for uh, objects and resources activates dopamine. Dopamine is a reward neurotransmitter when you take lots of cocaine. Uh, I will fully acknowledge that I've done lots of drugs in huge copious amounts in my past. It's been 24 years now since I gave that all up, but I can tell you the first time I did lots of cocaine, it felt fucking great. Uh, everything I said was brilliant. You know, I uncovered the meaning of the universe. I could, I could talk a million miles per hour, and everything I said was smart, and and everybody was, you know, loving everything I said because they were fucking off their heads too. And that's what dopamine does when you, you know, you induce it exogenously. The problem is that dopamine recedes, the secretion stops when you get the thing you're searching for. It's actually not rewarded upon acquiring, it's actually rewarding you while you search. So if you're shopping online on Amazon or um, you're hunting for some uh, a piece of apparel or some food, the dopamine is flowing while you're on Amazon and you're going through all those lists and looking at the attributes, dopamine is going crazy. But when you actually push by, guess what? The dopamine at that point actually stops secretion. And then to keep enough uh, essentially neural functioning going, when you deplete dopamine, there's not enough glutamate. So cortisol, the stress hormone comes up. So the moment we actually give up the uh, obsessive hunt for things, <laughs> there's actually stress that pops up. And that's why people can get caught up in what's called the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill is not only the observation that whatever we focus on acquiring with the idea, boy, my life will be great when I get a new car, better apartment, uh, whatever uh, I, I, I think I need, that it never lasts very long, that in fact the pleasure recedes, but also there's this idea that we all have what's called a, uh, a set point for our happiness that's partially determined by genetics and partially determined by early childhood experience attachment events. And after any event, no matter how good or bad, our baseline happiness returns to the same level. There was a fascinating study called lottery winners and accident victims is happiness relative. And what they found out is that uh, within six months, if you win the lottery or if you became paralyzed, most likely 
your happiness level, your amount of anxiety, stress, and all that would return to the same level it was before this important event. Now, that's not to say that you can't change your baseline happiness level, and I can tell you what that is, and I will in a moment. But the idea is, again, trying to achieve fulfillment using financial success, our reputation, uh, acquiring goals, all of that won't work. We will wind up soon enough back at the exact same place we started. In the Loka Vipati Sutta, one of my favorite suttas by the Buddha, which is known as the Eight Worldly Winds, life in the world, the Buddha is, is reported to have said, revolves between experiences of wealth and scarcity, fame and obscurity, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. When someone who is ignorant chases wealth, they don't understand that it will inevitably bring feelings of scarcity and therefore stress. The idea is any external condition that we try to acquire, accumulate, possess, will inevitably bring about its exact opposite. If I'm, thankfully I'm not, because it would be a doomed failure, was you know, fixated on my appearance, that would bring about days when I would stand in front of the mirror and feel like what a ridiculous looking uh, creature, which is actually my natural state. Anyway, uh, if, I, if people who are fixated on fame, of course, then the moment their fame, uh, they don't get the same amount of um, shares on a Twitter post, feel friendless and will feel like uh, essentially all their uh, connections and their popularity is dwindling. So whatever we chase after exactly creates its exact opposite. And this is, of course, true. You cannot define, for example, wealth unless you also, at the very state, the exact moment you think about wealth or financial security, you also have in your mind its exact opposite. Don't believe me? Read the works of Derrida, who basically proves that in all of his deeply unpleasantly long books. Um, <laughs> which I had to read in college. Finally, in the mammal, across the mammalian species, whenever a mammal acquires an object that gives it a real survival advantage, a large piece of food, or something that will give it as some kind of tribal status, what also happens is their cortisol levels go up, their stress, because now they've got to hold on to it. I can tell you, I have actually seen this in action. I have three cats, so I'm a cat guy, whatever that would be. Um, and whenever I sneakily give some food to one of my cats, the next thing they do is like that, because there's two other cats that are vying for it. So what's the opposite? If we cannot find fulfillment in those traditional markers of financial security or um, our reputations or fame or uh, accumulating sensual pleasures or objects, what does create fulfillment? Well, of course, traditionally, the other domain would be idealism and spirituality. Idealism is essentially the philosophical uh, category that spiritual pursuits are placed under. This is the idea that intangible mental experience, not material goods, not material wealth or resources, are what's most important. It's of the first order. And that uh, physical material is secondary, and that, um, in fact, uh, as the Buddha taught in I, core idealist philosophy, the idea that any material has any uh, quality to it, inherent to it, is obviously false. I'll give you an example of that. For if, 
for some people, getting a new car given to them would be a great thing. For Mirza, man, I don't know about Mirza. Mirza, maybe not. Who would like a car? Who wants a car? <laughs> All right, Jan. For Jan gets a car. It's a, it's great. It's synonymous with liberation, mobility, and ability. You know, uh, the he can travel now. He can he can move through New York without having to take. Uh, you know, mass transit like the rest of us because he's so entitled. I don't know what I'm... No, I'm joking. Uh, so, but, so it's a good thing. For me, getting a car would be ridiculous. I'm a terrified driver. I don't drive on purpose. I would find a car to be this just this nuisance that I would have to worry about parking and tickets and all that. I don't want a car, right? So this, it's the same car, but to one person... It's a, it's a conduit to a great sense of freedom. For me, it's a ball and chain. If somebody who was a multimillionaire had $10 million and they wake up and thanks to something insane that our president has done, half their wealth has immediately vanished overnight, that $5 million that a person has now feels scarce and feels, he feels vulnerable, he feels... Uh, uh, un, he feels uh, unprepared, he feels that all of his plans have essentially gone down the toilet. For me, I'd say thank you fucking very much to five million dollars. We'd still be here. <laughs> so you get the idea. The Buddha taught that requisites, the material things that we first talked about should be consumed in moderation, not as an end in themselves, but as a way to support our spiritual endeavors that give us fulfillment. So the Buddha said we all need food, shelter, um, uh, clothing, and medicine if we're sick. We need those things, but if you look at the amount that monks uh, and nuns have, it's a vastly diminished amount, but still they live very contented, happy lives that are very fulfilling. So why is that? How is it that we all can achieve uh, a degree of complete fulfillment and, and raise our baseline happiness levels without being fixated on any external material markers as any kind of security? How do we do it? And for the low cost of 1995. <laughs> so, well, the first thing is across all the baseline happiness studies of Leibomorsky, Salabin, Jonathan Haidt, etc., uh, they found that people who have a core group of friends who can help emotionally co regulate them their baseline happiness levels slowly raise over time and they're not, they tend to, they tend to actually have the highest scores on this. So if you're looking simply to raise your baseline happiness levels, the more you connect with people who emotionally will not judge or disavow you, who will listen and validate your feelings without in any way shaming or withdrawing attention when you talk about difficult things, then you have every likelihood of your baseline happiness levels being the highest that they can possibly be given certain pre- genetic predispositions. But we're talking not about baseline happiness, we're talking about fulfillment. Happiness is not the exact same thing as fulfillment. Fulfillment is a sense of meaning in life, one's life having a purpose. Happiness is a mood, it's an emotional it's an affect. It's a state that is subject to, at times, uh, raise and lower. Uh, but if you have a sense of purpose in your life, even if you have a really shitty day and you're really, at that moment, you feel hurt or wounded by something that someone says, you have resilience. You can bounce back. Simply having a baseline happiness level of something really bad happens, you lose an attachment figure, somebody does something that's really emotionally unpleasant, uh, Trump gets reelected, God forbid, then your 
baseline happiness actually could plummet and you could actually feel a significant long period of despair. So the more purpose or fulfillment you have in your life, the more resilient you are. The more you'll still be able to get out of bed the next day and do something that gives you a sense of drive, a sense of there's a, a meaning for my life. So there is uh, um, to a couple of things, of course, that the uh, domains that really create fulfillment. The first, in Sandra Leah Mamorsky's wonderful studies, she found again and again and again, and this has been reduplicated uh, continuously, that acts of altruism and kindness create a feeling of purpose and fulfillment. And Sandra's work, Sandra Lee Mamorsky's work, she found with her students that if we do uh, five acts of kindness a week, no matter how small, it could simply be returning a phone call or, uh, you know, I don't know, um, helping someone across the street, taking time out to uh, volunteer in some way. Any five small acts of kindness a week uh, significantly creates a sense of purpose, validation, self-esteem. Uh, all those markers go up. Um, that's a given, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we move on to the second large group, but I'm going to focus on the second large group. We have two principal uh, basic uh, neural operating systems. The first is called default. Default mode is an operating system that we're in when we're not too focused entirely on what we're doing and we can allow our minds to wander. That default mode operation has been shown by Killingsworth and Gilbert to be the most stressful and unhappy times in our life. The more we are not involved and focused on an activity or a task is actually the times that we, over, in their study, report the most amount of stress. Well, why is that? Well, it turns out the default mode network, which is, allows you to wander, visualize future outcomes, speculate about yourself, remember different events from your past, anything that allows you to fantasize or daydream, guess what? It's all deeply wired to the amygdala, the area of your brain that switches on during really negative, emotionally painful events. Your amygdala is five times more likely to respond to threats than opportunities or pleasant events. So the amygdala, when we disconnect from our our focused attention, we allow our minds to wander, makes damn sure that our thoughts go nowhere good over a long period of time. You can start out pleasant, but soon enough, you're going to start wondering about, well, will I have enough money in the future? How will I be able to do that? What will other people think about me? Etc. Etc. Don't believe me? Try it. Just, <laughs> Just... Don't give your mind a task. Just allow it to go anywhere it wants. They did this with 10,000 people. <laughs> they developed an iPhone app, and they literally, in this app, would ask, okay, what are you doing, and how do you feel, right? That was pretty basic, essentially. And when people reported they were simply allowing their minds to wander, they felt shitty. <laughs> Literally, in the study, if you want to read this study, please, please read the study. It's called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. They didn't make it difficult to remember it. It's a Harvard study, a massive one. They found that, that people actually are happier doing things they hate than allowing their minds to wander. So I most likely am happier in root canal than I am just sitting at home just idly typing in, you know, under pitchfork, you know, new music, and meanwhile just allowing it to go wherever it wants. So what turns off default mode network and allows us to not 
have these untethered thoughts that will lead us to dire future outcomes, needless uh, worries, catastrophizing ideations, and of course the biggest hits, reflecting and and ruminating on all the negative interpersonal interactions that have happened to us. Well, that would of course be flow. Flow state or task positive. This is a, essentially it's an entirely different neural circuit. The wandering thoughts are associated with the ventral medial. The flow states are dorsal. So they're actually using a different circuit. These are a state of operation where you are focused on an activity. And this activity is something that is over time has become natural, automatic, something where you feel a certain degree of mastery. And the guy who essentially discovered this, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi Mahi, Hungarian names are just a piece of work. Um, literally, there's not a vowel in his name. Uh, so he was enamored with painters and he studied them and he found that over time painters who were deeply merged with their work would lose their appetite, would lose any sense of thirst, uh, sleepiness, tiredness for really extensive periods of time to the degree that other people could not. The creative or focused endeavor on something that would preoccupy the mind where there was a sense of feedback between what we were doing, where there was this creativity to it. He found that in that experience, a couple of important things would switch off in the brain. One, the parietal lobe that worries about where other people are, worries about your environment. So you no longer, when you're deeply creative or in this state, the uh, sense of self or other goes away. There's a loss of the sense of time. Hours can fly by like minutes. There's a switching off of the ventral medial, which means self-conscious, self-oriented thoughts go away. How pleasant does this sound, right? Um, we have little worries about past or future, and we see this idea across transhistorical ideas, certainly the philosophy of Heidegger, the rather unpleasant Nazi guy, um, who, folk, who had a concept called care, was all about the state of flow, which he really uh, um, uh, essentially held up as the ideal peak experience of uh, human life. We find this in the Vedic and in the Atavic uh, traditions of yoga, of getting into a flow state. The Buddha talked about it in the jhana uh, concentration and in the visualization meditations. And uh, so th it's not a new, um, it's not a new realization that the more we become focused on an activity that we're good at, that, that we are literally so deeply engaged with and the activities are automatic and there's very little sense of, um, of uh, anxiety that comes about and very little self-evaluation. Um, Chihali Mahi was a, uh, deeply associated with a transpersonal psychologist like Maslow, who's a hero of mine, and transpersonal psychologists all noted that human beings need to have a sense that this activity that creates flow has to also be assigned to something that is a sense of something bigger than themselves, that their work is not only creative, but that in some way it's, it helps others, that it brings some quality or some value or some, uh, that it in some ways tied out with the well-being of other people, hence back to the altruism and to that need for connection. 
Um, Maslow taught that when you get to these peak experiences, the ego boundaries that worry about what other people think about or how we stand out are obliterated. obliterated. So we no longer have a story of, oh, I'm great at this, or other people will think uh, I'm really special. We do the activity because it's so, uh, it's so engaging and we feel that it's of some worth. It's expressive. It, act it externalizes internal psychological uh, associative qualities in the right hemisphere, so it's creative. It's uh, essentially been shown to increase our longevity in Carlton's research. The more we have a sense of focused, engaged, fulfilling activity in our lives. Important to know, and here's something that I really want to drive home, this activity is not something that is wired into your brain or something that was available to you at birth. It's not an inherent activity. It's something that you discover in life. There's nothing in me that years and years ago when I was born said, okay, this you know little kid is destined to be a Buddha teacher <laughs> or a guy who gets a lot of flow from creating music. No. These are simply activities that I spent literally thousands of hours doing. And I got to the point where over time the anxiety about was I any good at it started to go away. The boredom went away. The sense of mastery developed. If you've ever read uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, it's the entire point of the book that flow, peak experiences, success, all those markers and all those psychological states, I should say, are not things that are inherent to us. They are things that we develop. We simply see something, we gravitate to it, and of course we have to be lucky enough to have access to it. So even if uh, you see a piano and it's something that looks great, if you live in a, uh, a financial setting where you cannot get access to it, then having playing the piano be the fulfilling activity will unfortunately not be available. We'll have to find something that is available to us. And uh, so the four qualities that are found across the uh, studies by uh, people who are involved in uh, task positive states or flow activities find that fulfillment is most likely to be found in the following situations or settings. One, where we understand how the task is attached to a larger beneficial plan. So simply creating music or art or designing shoes or architects, if they don't feel that their work is in some way bringing something to other people, it will not be that fulfilling. There has to be the sense that what I do is in some way of benefit. We have tribal circuits in our brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, if we don't feel that our activities are in some way beneficial to others, there's essentially a lowering of endorphins and serotonin because we are tribal species. We need to have pro-tribal events. The second quality is there's the environment where we are fulfilled has to be safe and unharried an arena where we can explore and play. In Shaheli Ma's work, he calls it uh, serious play, that work should be a place where you can take risks, try new ideas, in an environment where people will not judge you for the fact that you're trying things a different way, that you're exploring other interests, that there's not this hurried environment. We also want to feel that feedback will happen. That doesn't mean we want to be criticized, it just means we want somebody who will see our work and directly respond to it. Someone who, so there needs to be a sense not only that out there my work is of value to others, but 
what I'm doing will somehow be noted and that other people will take the time to look at it and give me some kind of informed view on it or at least some sense that I'm being, my work is acknowledged. And of course, the biggest factor is focus, the ability to focus. Of all these key ingredients for many of us, the ability to focus our attention and get through the times where we learn or we develop mastery in any kind of task is very difficult. Focus is, of course, being forever comp compromised by the prevalence of dopamine stimulating objects such as smartphones, etc. Attention deficit uh, uh, symptoms and diagnoses are spiraling. And if we cannot focus our attention, we cannot, by definition, attain a state of fulfillment in an activity. So in many ways, uh, there will probably be an ever-growing crisis of people who feel deeply unfulfilled because they will not be able to get to a state of not only mastery of what they do, but a state where they can become so uh, concentrated on the activity that the stressful thoughts about self and time and other obligations and lingering uh, stories about other events and nagging stimuli will not get in their way. So tonight, we will be developing the capability to focus so that we can actually take this and start to apply it to activities that we will hopefully continue on. If you learn to develop the skill, the chances are through, through the initial stages of, of uh, attaining mastery, the initial stages are called, shit, I really suck at this, <laughs> that you will persevere. Because the ability to focus allows us to return our attention again and again and again when a distracting thought or a distracting external stimuli has grabbed hold of our attention. This has been the case of everything I do in my life that has now brought me any uh, sense of uh, purpose and joy was that I always had to overcome both the initial boredom and the initial anxiety that I wasn't any good at. So the Buddha taught in Sampujana that uh, an awareness that cultivates the ability to focus is of course non-judgmental, it's receptive, it's imbued with appreciation that it seeks the uniqueness and even the most mundane experiences, such as with the breath, for example, the ability to find out what is different in each breath, that ability to find the unique in uh, uh, tasks and activities where the initial motor movements are awkward is very key and very vital. The ability to enjoy the process, not try to get to any destination. So for the vast bulk of our lives as meditators, we will not be anywhere near enlightenment or bliss. But if you learn to enjoy the process, then you will develop the tools necessary to transfer that to other activities. So we're going to be using some of the techniques that are in the jhana meditations to help us develop better attentional and focused skills. That's it. That's my talk. And now we're going to meditate. Uh, I hope that there was something of interest in that. Find a really comfortable seated position. And just reminding you that uh, whenever you leave, if you can, uh, if you don't have money to donate and you'd like to support us so that we can keep having meetings and I can keep teaching, uh, 
We have a Venmo. Yes. I didn't know about Venmo until people here insisted that we get a Venmo. Uh, so our Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. If you'd like to donate by PayPal on the site where all the talks are, Dharma Punks NYC, or a podcast site, there's PayPal buttons. So that's about it. That's our please help us message. And now onwards to the practice. So closing your eyes. Or looking at the ground if you don't want to do that. And take a moment and just allow your your torso to wobble like it's a top around in a circle, front and back. Just a nice little sway. Bring any energy you need to your hips. And then very slowly, over time, allow your body on its own without any cognitive oversight, just allow your body to stop on its own. When you don't have cognitive, when you don't think yourself into an upright position, you just allow your body on its own to do it, then you're engaging your right hemisphere and your right hemisphere has control over both halves of your body, so it gives you good balance. Your thinking mind only actually controls the right side of your body, so when it tries to balance you, it imbalances you. All right. So let's take a few breaths just to engage the vagal break, which will slow down our heart rates and allow us to digest and get into a more relaxed state. So take a nice full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up like you're lifting two heavy bags. Keep those shoulders as close to your ears as you can and then breathe out slowly, rotating the shoulders back, which opens up the chest and then dropping them. And if you like, you can put your arms for a moment behind your back and cup them together if that's good for you and just open up that chest and then allow your arms to swing back in front of your body wherever it's comfortable. There's no right or wrong position for your arms. It's just what works for you. Take another complete in-breath and either push out your belly or pull it in. Just create an uncomfortable abdomen. And then slowly breathe out and soften your belly. Your belly is the hub of the vagal vagus nerve cluster. So many of us, when we are worried, angry, frightened, the abdominal muscles tighten, and then even after the thoughts have passed, we carry around this triggered state, which then influences our behaviors in other interpersonal settings. So softening the belly is an excellent way to switch out of your sympathetic nervous system back into the uh, ventral parasympathetic, the relaxed, digest. (laughs) And for our third breath in this series, Squinching the muscles in the face, locking the jaw, furrowing the brow, tightening the micro muscles around the eyes, and then releasing the jaw, unfurrowing the brow, 
softening the muscles around the eyes. And just imagine your eye sockets are a, like a pair of couches and your eyes now can relax into the eye sockets without needing to bounce around looking for anything. So just encourage your eyes to settle I've found over now 30 years that uh, when my eyes are settled and don't twitch and move a lot behind my eyelids that my mind as well starts to settle much quicker. So that's actually a key way to Soothe. So we'll start this practice the way the 2,500-year-old Dharma instructed, simply by just noting whether our breath is an inhalation or an exhalation, and whether the inhalations and exhalations are long or short. And I would add that the more you want to self-soothe and diminish stress, the simple key is to extend the length of your exhalations, which engages your vagal break, slows down the heart rate again, lessens blood pressure. So we can combine these instructions simply by either counting the length of inhalations and exhalations. So if, for example, you count to three on your in-breath, try to count to four or five at least on the out-breath. Don't push out the air, just gently release it so that if you put a finger in front of your mouth or nose, you would barely feel the breath as it left the body.
if counting doesn't feel right, you can use a phrase, putting more, stacking more syllables to the exhalation. So as you breathe in, you might think, may I feel or be, may I be, and then on the out breath, happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. So breathing in, may I be, breathing out, happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Allow as many sounds and other body sensations into your awareness at first, but gently over time try to keep awareness, at the front of your awareness, the breath. If any thoughts arise how to make the breath more comfortable, those thoughts are fine. Part of developing flow is to not only focus, but at times think about our task. any other kinds of thoughts about the past or the future or events not pertaining to cultivating a really relaxing breath. Don't judge those thoughts or become frustrated or impatient, just as if they're a boat that floated up to where you are, just Gently note it. You can give it a little nudge away or just allow it to be there, but just bring your awareness back to cultivating the most comfortable awareness of your breath.
instead of focusing on the length of the breath, now bring your attention to some quality in each breath, the inhalation or the exhalation of both, that's slightly different from the previous breath. That could be one breath, the inhalation is slightly deeper or shallower or longer, or one breath feels easier to observe and another breath less, or one breath makes a more complete release in the exhalation. Any subtle difference this is a really actually a quite vital capability to bring interest into our activity So, now shift your attention from the breath and find some area in your body that feels really, really good. Could be the palms of your hand. It could be the eyes the heart center, the middle of your chest. And just keep your attention on this area that feels really good. And as you have a sense that you're breathing out, try to gently, slowly expand this area. This is what the Buddha called fully engaged, immersive attention called Akagata. Just find what feels pleasant and just
just with each breath, especially with your exhalations, just spread this area. If it's in your palms, when you breathe out, feel the warmth or the ease moving up your arms, past your elbows, in your heart center, just a Feel that warmth, ease, release, spreading up to your shoulders and down to your abdomen. If it's in your eyes, if your eyes feel relaxed with the out of breath, imagine the energy of release, or I should just say just the release flowing down the body like a warm shower bringing ease to everything in its path So I'm going to ring the bowl. And just try to make the transition from the focus on the breath to a balanced awareness of the world around you. Try to make it as smooth as you can so that you don't lose any of the attributes of at least the positive attributes that might have been cultivated during the practice. So, your job is to take these attentional focused skills and find some activity that feels both in some way tied to other people's well-being but it also has an element of creativity to it. If you do that, I'm sure your life will be fulfilled. <laughs> I'm going to turn this off.